Hello, dreamers. If I was famous enough to have a cult following, I assume that's what they'd be called. Dreamers or sleepyheads, maybe. Anyway, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast on YouTube and iTunes. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at livinthedream506. But most importantly, keep listening and let me know what you think. My guest today is the drummer of the band Umphreys McGee. He is the hardest working man in show business. Please give it up for Mr. Chris Myers. Myers, hardest working man in show business. Yeah. Drummer for Humphreys McGee. How you doing, man? What's up, buddy? You're Chris with a C-H. I'm also Chris. C-H. Yeah, of course. How, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. So Chris with a K, what's the, what's the origin of, like, where are you from? Where's your nationality? Uh, my nationality is American. Right. Of course. <laughs> I'm from uh, Chicago. I was born in Elmhurst, Illinois, which is just about a half hour west of the city of Chicago. And um, I grew up in Palatine, Illinois, which is like a northwest suburb in Inverness, which is a, inside Palatine. And then I uh, lived there my whole life until about 2000. Uh, and that year I moved into the city and I lived there all over in different places until 2014. And then I moved to LA for two years, two and a half years maybe. And then uh, moved here in Nashville. Uh, I've been here for three years. Nice. Yeah. How do you like Nashville? Love it. It's great. People are friendly and really nice place to live and to buy a house and all that. It's really nice. Nice. Um, so throughout this, we usually do a fan questions section, but if something comes up that's on topic, I'm, I might throw it in. So Yeah, sure. Eggie JB said, are hot chicken sandwiches in Nashville really worth the hype? And which place is the best? Hot chicken sandwiches? Yeah. I don't even hot know what that means. <laughs> Spicy chicken? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I've never been to Nashville. <laughs> yeah, the, the hot chicken sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. The hot sandwiches. Yeah, um, basically, uh, I've had a, I've had a, let's see. Prince's hot chicken. That's that to me is my favorite. Um, but Hattie B's is famous for it. There's a couple other spots. I, I'm not really. I'm not a true Nashvilleian, but I think that to me Prince's seems to be one of my favorites. That's more of a low key place, but it's cool. Nice. Really good. So you got a birthday coming up this weekend, eh? Yes, I do. Happy early birthday. Thanks. Any plans? <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna take a vacation and go to my living room. Or no, actually my my uh, practice room. I'll actually play, do a bunch of drumming on my on my birthday and get back, you know, back in shape. Nice. Is that what 
that what you're doing quite a bit right now with the time off? Yeah, trying to trying to get back into it. Um, trying to um, get out and on nice days and hike. And there's a really nice park near near me. It's very spacious, not a lot of people, and I just it's beautiful. Uh, Edwin Warner Park and uh, Percy Warner Parks are out in like kind of like the the west lo lower southwest region of outside of the city of Nashville. It's really beautiful. Nice. Yeah. So, like, with all this time and practice, and like you were saying, do, as a drummer, do you write riffs in the same sense that, like, say, a guitarist would write a guitar riff? Um, I would say that rhythmically, we can relate, and what we're trying to do with articulation of the of the of the phrase. If, yeah, I will try to compose things originally, you know, um, but a lot of what I do is based off of vocabulary I've learned in the past. And assimilate it in the in the moment when I interpret things and read like read a chart or play with someone else. I would much rather do it in the moment. However, when you need to learn new vocabulary and maybe compose something, you might as well do it that way. So I yeah, sometimes I'll do that. Right. What would be like some of your favorite beats that you've written for some of your original songs? Um I think that keep touching my face <laughs> yeah, <same. laughs> i'm in my i'm in, i guess when you're in your house it's okay but when you're yeah, exactly. in public uh anyway so um what was i gonna say i think maybe uh some of my older patterns from the old like from anchor drops there was a lot there's a couple from that record that i i thought was pretty creative like anchor drops i think is one that's pretty interesting um i like you know plunger that's from that record too even stuff that like you know in the newer records I, I was trying to simplify a little more and get more better tones and sounds than worrying about rhythmic permutations and things um i think dark brush is one that i've based off of a riff a lot of what i do is based off of guitar riffs and i'm trying to just emulate that on the kit
So like most of the, you know, the recent stuff is basically straight ahead beats. Like, you know, and it's not us, it's you. So I guess I don't really dig into, you know, or emphasize what I've created as much as I've just been able to provide in that moment for the band. Right. I have other projects, you know, where I do compose things, but you know, like what? Well, um, I have a publishing company, uh, for music licensing. It's called good night nurse music. And, um, we're about to launch it, you know, more publicly. Uh, we've had to, you know, add a lot more music to the library and, and get a publishing deal, which we have now, but we've, we've been working on on music that's kind of score based and then also stuff for commercials and for maybe for tv uh, uh for film for um video games and uh i have a partner uh basically who works with me on that and we, we do a lot of sound design and, and and compositions together but uh and i'm also working on an old uh long time band i've been together with since even before i'm free called kick the cat and we're working on a new album and kind of reuniting this later on whenever we get through this this period of our life yeah that's about so, it is there anything we would like that you've done so far like you said you write for did you say video games and stuff well we're trying to yeah <clears throat> we're um it's just all kinds of different music licensing entities you know commercials uh tv shows whatever will will be accepted in our library and we're we're open for business so we're just trying to get it out there so there's nothing that's been done yet oh no everything's well as far as deals go yeah we've had a couple uh we we did some ad for a promo ad for a 360 camera um like about a year or two ago and then um, we've had other deals that kind of uh were put together uh one for even like a formula one race company um so it's just you know a matter of what people hear and what they want and we're trying to add more of that trying to figure that out what people really want now you know like sometimes just real simple brain dead simple things like little whistling kind of melodies with americana acoustic and stuff it's great for a commercial you know right so we're trying to do that but we do we tend to be t like we our original format was to be more score based with kind of a darker maybe industrial kind of sound you know cool kind of like what Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross do but not I mean obviously they're masters but like you know that's the inspiration yeah is there anywhere we can hear some of that like that's that's kind of my favorite genre is like the dark industrial like especially when you guys do it with the with the jams and stuff like that's my favorite genre that you guys explore oh cool yeah thanks um goodnightnursemusic.com is a uh, is what you can find for us from for you know www.goodnightnursemusic.com cool mm -hmm. so along the lines with the the current state of the world a lot of us are really bummed with the cancellation of all shows not to just single them out but especially the iceland destination dates and stuff and like the fact that those shows sold out so quickly is that is that something that kind of you guys really had such a great response. Is there plans for the future to maybe do a little bit more destination stuff, some more international dates, European dates once everything settles? Honestly, at this point, it's hard to, to say. Uh, we're, we're just following the rules and guidelines of the CDC at this point. And 
uh, of course, we're going to do our very, very best to try to accommodate the needs of the fans to come out and see, you know, some some new music uh, or some new shows if that ever if that day ever comes. We just don't know when. Um, it's hard to predict or even plan for anything. Um, you know, as far as Europe, we haven't been there in a while, so I don't really know what the chances are of going there again. Are but I can't. I, you can never say never. Uh, I just don't know at this point, unfortunately. I, um, but yeah, I, I would assume that we'll do our best to figure out something. Yeah. Before it all happened, was that something that was discussed as a band? Like, wow, Iceland sold out in, in minutes. Like, yeah. maybe we should look into it. Well, of course. I mean, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about a lot of things, you know, the, the festivals for the summer and, and the festivals that we were going to play, like, uh, you know, prior to that, like, Umbol, our own thing, you know. I mean, we were just going to see about all these things, you know. I don't know for sure what's been confirmed yet. I don't even think anything has been confirmed because we don't even know ourselves. Right. This thing is just taking everyone by surprise in the whole industry and everywhere else in, in life, you know, and it's just really, it's, it's words can't even express. <laughs> I don't even know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so this year, Umble was taken on a new format with, uh, instead of the four quarters, you guys are going to do two days. Mm -hmm. Um is like can you shed any light on exactly what the plan was for the two days like the new format what was going to happen instead of the regular four quarters like well i can't speak for the experts that would explain it better than i would um maybe you know management you know kevin or somebody would be able to explain it better but from what i understand we're just taking the same format that we did and just changing a few things ever so slightly um, but we're just making it extended to two days so that we don't have to do all of that in the bulk of one show. Um, of course, that's, you know, non-conventional to what we've done in the past, but I think it's best for, for us and for our fans to make it a better quality experience, more of a weekend run, you know, and I don't, I don't think it would make any difference. If anything, it's going to improve everyone's mindset towards having two days versus one, because it's pretty exhausting for one day to, to do the geeked out stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I attended two Umbles and as um, amazing as they are, especially yeah. with all the, all the different different avenues that you guys explore on the four quarters, it is a long night. Like even though the sets are shorter, like each quarter is what, 45 minutes or something like that, but it still is a long night. Same with like New Year's and the three full sets. It's a, it's a long night. It's hard on the feet and hard on the, hard on the system for sure. Yeah. I think the fans would even agree or, or even maybe resonate that with their, their retaining of everything. It, it's just yeah. cool enough to have it spread out for two days and, and make it more enjoyable and more comfortable. Yeah. Um, sure. I, I remember when we used to, when we first started, I think we did like a six or seven hour humble <laughs> when we were younger. <laughs> And, and I, by the time I was done, I remember loading out and getting in my car and I was drenched like, like I jumped in a pool. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah, that's a marathon. Yeah. On, on regular nights, my girlfriend wanted me to ask you, do you get tired every night? Like every show, are you exhausted at the end of a show? Um, I'm not exhausted, but I'm definitely, um, after a number of shows and a, and a tour, I'll start to feel you know, a little bit of the fatigue set in, um, depends on the, on the night, you know, sometimes 
it's just hit or miss. I try to get through each set based off of the years of experience we have to, to know and calc, you know, gauge what we physically can do and handle. Um, after shows, I tend to just lay low now and uh, these days and then just ice down when I can. I have a whole icing routine and then um, just lots of fluids. And then I try to you know, calm myself down so I can eventually go to sleep because the adrenaline's going for three, you know, about three hours straight. So um, some nights it's, it's easier than others, I guess. It's just hit or miss. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing it your whole life. Like, did, you started, I think I read, when you were eight years old. Is that true? Yes. So how did you get into drumming? Like, were you one of those kids where your parents said you pick, a, pick an instrument and kind of forced you to learn? Or was there a reason why you chose it at such a young age? Um, actually, it wasn't even my parents that influenced me to, to play. It was my uncle, my uncle Bill, who uh, was getting married at that time. And I think he was kind of getting rid of some things in his closet or whatever, you know, some old belongings of his. One of which is he had this really sweet blue bar, blue sparkle, um, 1967 or 1970 blue Ludwig kit. And uh, he gave it to me. And uh, I was always interested. I had like a, some kind of like a toy drum set before that in my basement that I beat up pretty well. And I was just messing around, not aware I was going to get serious with it. And then he, he ended up giving that kit, that, that drum set with to me. And then I started just kind of, you know, self-teaching myself because he would come down and show me and demonstrate a couple beats. And he wasn't even really a, a drummer per se. He just knew how to play. He was a singer in a band when he was younger, but then, oh, cool. but Bill basically gave me the kit and showed me a couple, you know, different beats that he knew. I would just kind of memorize and remember, you know, uh, what I visually and saw and then of course what I was hearing and then I would just kind of listen, listen and play and then I would I would work on each part of it and uh, listen to the radio and play along to the radio and so I just kind of self-taught myself my parents they weren't going to say no but they weren't exactly thrilled about it but <laughs> they of course supported me you know throughout the whole growth and development of learning the instrument right the I eventually got lessons you know when I was 11 I got lessons okay yeah yeah, well, my son, Michael, wanted to say hi, first off. And All right. He, uh, he's nine right now, and he was wondering, like, how often did you practice playing as a kid? And, like, once you started taking lessons, were you, were you then pressured to really stick with it, or was it always a passion of yours? I think that I was – I don't remember that far back, but I think I was pretty driven naturally by the instrument. Um, I was pretty much practicing after school every day. And I think my parents kind of, you know, noticed that and they then let me get lessons. And once I got lessons, then I had something to work on and really understand how to read music, how to understand what I was playing, learn a new vocabulary of drum fills and patterns. And of course, I started working on it. And the purpose of it all was mainly to get with uh, a band of guys at that time, you know, there were guys in the band and in, in the neighborhood that could play different instruments. And that's exactly what I did when I was by age 12. I ended up in a, you know, a rock band and we would play in the basement or the garage. And that was my inspiration for a while. Uh, but yeah, I, I was pretty driven to do it, to work on it. I mean, I was very active at more athletics at that time. 
um, you know, different types of sports and stuff. And I was more into that as a kid, but then music kind of ended up taking over. So. Right. Um, Dennis McBride was wondering about sports and stuff. Like, do you have other hobbies that you still kind of mess around with? Yeah. Um, I play golf. That's like a lifelong thing you can do because it's easier on your body. It's not like physical contact, you know. Um, I was a tennis player. Uh, I was a swimmer. I ended up going to high school. and um, It was a state contending high school swim team. So it was very competitive and it was, I, I got a lot of great experiences from that. And um, it was really good for you, you know, uh, in terms of being in shape. Um, and yeah, that's it. Oh, soccer. <laughs> of course, soccer. You know, I, I grew up playing soccer and uh, I was actually pretty good. You know, I played travel leagues at some point when I was 14. Uh, and then I just had to choose by the time I got to college or actually by the time I got to high school between golf and soccer and which one was going to be better for me. So I chose golf because I was better at it. And, and soccer was extremely competitive where I, where I was from. So I didn't really have a chance. Um, I mean, some of those players ended up on pro leagues, you know, growing up. So uh, I ended up playing golf. Yeah. So that's my main pastime. Nice. Which soccer pros were you playing with? Um, I grew up with this. Uh, his name is Batata da Silva. I don't think he is playing lot, uh, pro anymore. But uh, there was a couple other guys. Um, Mike McGee is a cousin of a friend of mine. and. I think currently he was playing with LA and then was in Chicago playing with them for a while. Um, but there were also hockey players that I, I met was going to say were ones that end up going in the Chicago wolves. Um, but yeah, there's, 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 it was a very, like a very sports driven high school, you know, a lot of great, great athletes there, but I, I just cool. ended up just playing golf <laughs> and golf was good enough. It was, it was also competitive. I grew up, Actually, uh, you know, DA Points is on the tour. And when I was 11, we played in a tournament together in Pekin, Illinois. And I was 11. And I got second, he got first. But he was way, way better than I was. Nice. That was the only time I ever really encountered playing with someone who ended up becoming a PGA pro um, like that. Like a real actual name, like a household name. Um, but, yeah, that was, my, that was kind of my focus. Golf was my – I was pretty serious about it, but that again was also so extremely competitive and I pretty much didn't have a chance. Cause I mean, all the guys were like DA points, you know, right. Almost breaking, breaking even at like 12 or 13 years old, you know? So then college, that's when you made the decision for music. Like this is going to be my life kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I didn't know the first year because the first year I, you know, I just got thrilled and grateful enough to get into Elmhurst college uh, with a scholarship uh, to play music and at that time they didn't really have a specific degree set towards drum set players it was more of a classical percussion uh, or music business you know like either you were doing a, you know classical as a focus or you could do music education or music business and I chose music business and then they eventually gave me a BA in music Bachelor of Arts in Music degree right uh, uh, and I was I'd say about by, by the time I was a sophomore or or a junior was when I really, re, you know, I, I started to think about if this could be something I could do for a living. Um, Cause I started getting offered gigs by my teacher to play like professionally 
in the city. And when you start to evaluate how you connect with players at that level, you start to realize what kind of chance you have. And I really had no idea because I grew up just playing in, in really good bands, but like playing, you know, jazz and then playing chart, you know, sessions and, and reading charts and stuff was a whole new world so i was learning all of that in college at that moment i and i it was it was a sink or swim situation right yeah so then you got luck you got lucky you got uh, <laughs> to go to uh audition and yes. you joined was it like the end of 2002 2003-ish when you got with umphrey yeah the end of 2002 i believe in the fall was when i sent in the press kit of my personal um, press kit. And uh, I just drove it right over to the manager's house and put it in his mailbox, you know? And uh, it, I, oddly enough, and it was the first package they received of literally hundreds. Um, so it was a good thing I went that day and uh, dropped it off. Um, but yeah, then, you know, the process kind of started in November and I started getting to know some of the players. Uh, Andy was the first one that called me and then I got to know him and then I came over to Jake's he was living in Wrigleyville at that time and then uh I basically went down in his basement with them while they were there and then played a little bit learned a song and then they told me to just go downstairs and play for a little bit um and they went upstairs to to probably talk over the audition people you know anyone who has auditioned and while they were doing that they were very uh uh, you know, clever and and had a microphone stashed somewhere in the basement, pl- you know, that was on while I was playing, so they right. could hear what I was doing, because they told me just to keep playing. So I think uh, it, the process was for you know basically throughout the fall of two thousand two, and then I ended up playing in January two thousand three. Nice. So Tyler Gresh wrote in. Many of us remember when you first joined the band, and he added, "Get in the band, dude." And what was that experience like stepping into an already sort of established group and filling the shoes of the late Mike Miro? And how have you grown as a musician since then? Well, it was not easy. It was really tough. It was probably more maybe stressful and and a sense of uncertainty than anything. I was confident as a player, but I was also realizing I was getting into a whole world I was not really in tune with. I was um, learning about the politics and the understanding and the ethics of being in a band at that level, a professional level like that, understanding how to, to communicate, how to collaborate and be the new guy. And there was definitely, uh, it was, there, those were some challenging times uh, at times. And, um, but, you know, you just got to learn how to, you know, eventually be positive and, uh, you know, eventually get through the hard times and then just see what, what can make, you can make of it. Um, and I think that I'm grateful for the experience because you learn how to work with people as opposed to just working on honing in on your independent chops or your technique. It's not all about that. It's about how you make something a little, you know, a little more, um, you know, a, I think on the, in the role of being an accompanist towards someone else's idea. It's how you connect and, and speak a language together. And there's a whole language that's like, that Umphrey's had that was non-conventional to what I learned from my world, you know. But it, it, it was, there were a lot of similarities though, so I was able to pick up on it. Um, yeah, it was tough. I mean, 
even just memorizing the songs alone was probably the most challenging. And we had to learn a lot. I had to learn a lot of tunes in a short amount of time before January, because this whole thing happened pretty abruptly, I guess. And uh, playing Mike's parts were, um, were, were tough at first. Like, I mean, they threw in some progressive elements back in the older music that was a little more complex. And I was, I respected that. Um, and I just uh, tried to play a lot of what Mike did and then tried to put my twist on it without getting too, changing things too much because I didn't want to be disrespectful to the fans and what they expected, you know? All right. Um, I did come in a little strong uh, handed, meaning I was a little heavier handed and, and a little louder, more vigorous. And I played like, with a thicker drumstick at that time because I just, I was, I was coming from jazz world at that time in my, in my career and my development. So I figured I had to get back to playing rock again. So I, I was really playing hard. And I think I were some, pl- some complaints from uh, some fans, like he hits too hard. Or he's, you know, they, they were just getting used to the new guy and they were giving me a hard time at first. And I, I respect that, you know, but you know, sure. it's, come, it's come a long way since then. Yeah, absolutely. What was the hardest song to learn? Um, Der Blutenkot was was a little challenging because of all the cues and the, and the the odd little tag phrases that we have to that they rely on me to to cue for them to go to the next section. I still couldn't quite get a lot of those cues right away, and I would miss some. And you know, I had to make sure I had that right. I know another way to believe when I 
So that was tough. And um, I remember Out of Order was a little challenging. Second Self was challenging, trying to learn that, some of those parts, like in the, the odd time signature section. It's a little more yeah. Zappa-like. For sure. Yeah. Um, how does having another drummer and percussionist in the band change the way that you're able to play? Like with Andy, uh-huh. shout out to Andy Farag, um, does it allow him, like does he focus on things like texture, which allows you to maybe focus more on some more difficult beats or anything like that? Um, yes, I think that's been a, a process of in, in itself and it still is. Um, a drummer and percussionist relationship is, is a del- is one that you have to work together with on. Sometimes some guys can just play together and naturally just do what they want to do and interpret things the way they want at the time without having to talk about it. But I think Andy and I have tried to, to at least do a little bit of that, but also do a little bit of listening to each other and know when someone's going to go off and play and ad lib a little more. And then the other guy could just sort of play, you know, play straight ahead and, and you know, vice versa. Um, it's always a work in progress. Um, we did, we did learn to, you know, play some assigned parts as well and agree on that for very, you know, for some subtle sections. And we're trying to do more of that because it's just, right. it's becoming a, that it's a better, it's, a, it's more advantageous to like play in unison for some things underneath the bed of what's going on between Joel, Jake and Brendan, you know, and Ryan. So, cause everyone wants to play their own part naturally. So I think that the rhythm section, you know, needs to tighten up and maybe try to play less. And I'm trying to do that. It's, it's not easy because <laughs> you get excited and you want to, you want to have a lot of interplay, uh, especially with the solo guitarists, you know, anybody soloing or anyone taking the lead on something. And then, you know, you want to have a conversation with them, but, but then you learn sometimes that the, you know, you, it's sometimes it's best just to keep it streamlined. So yeah, Andy and I try to do that. And then, you know, we'll think about all the, the, you know, the, the different elements of what we have in our setup where he can do something on top of my, you know, uh, cavernous kind of like low floor tom kind of grooves or a kick drum, kick drum hat and snare, just keeping it simple. And then he can like, he can improvise on congas a little more. He can like do some, some things with his uh, concert toms. You know, we have become more uh, adept to each other on that way. Um, so I think it's just, but it's continuing. It's always a work in progress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One thing that just came to mind for me, like um, I saw Radiohead live and one of their songs, if I'm remembering correctly, Bloom, they have yeah. three drum kits going and different time signatures. Like do you and Andy ever fuck around with that type of idea? Like him doing a completely different time signature? Like from each other? Yeah. Yeah. Same time. Um, no, that's something that's a little more advanced. I think that, honestly, I don't think we get that complex with, with it. Um, but there are groups that do that. I mean, for one, King Crimson is probably the perfect example of that, where they have two to three drum sets. And then the last two are three drum sets uh, where they're playing almost like through composed arrangements. And they're playing layer, like things just off of each other, like implied time signatures going on as sort of this amazing like cyclical pattern that continues to happen is kind of menacing we try to do things like that even in the moment but it's a little more it's a little more loose a little more liberal in our world than that 
I would like to do that, but it's, it's always tough to execute. Yeah. I find you and Jake can kind of do that together quite well. Yeah. We kind of naturally fall in that pocket once in a while. I mean, he and I have the same influences and, in in you know, it really was, I think we really connected on that, on that sort of instinctive level of playing. Right. So what specifically are you referencing for influences like Zappa, for instance? Yeah. Um, Frank Zappa, King Crimson, um, maybe some like anything in the fusion world from Alan Holdsworth to uh, uh, Weather Report to uh, um, anything from Mahavishnu, you know, Billy Cobham um, and all the great guitar players of that world. Um, then there's some of the heavier players from the from metal. And we learned a lot in an early time uh, how to sort of apply the progressive metal sound into Humphreys at a, at an early stage before progressive music got a little more modern, which it has been, you know, nowadays, if you listen to a lot of metal bands, there's, a, there's definitely a big scene now that's where there's a lot of progressive kind of rhythms and patterns being played. And it's pretty, pretty sick, pretty amazing. Um, and adding that to the jam world can be, you know, tricky to pull off, but I think we, we execute it well and still keep it within that world, the nature, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I mean, Jake and I just have similar influences of like a lot of King Crimson, a lot of Frank Zappa, um, and then any particular metal band of whatever era, we just, you know, um, and then jazz, jazz is a big thing. You know, Jake actually is very well versed in, in jazz records. Like he's a collector. So he's kind of like an encyclopedia or like a musicologist in his own right of, a lot of great records of all genres. He just, he just has a great mind like that. Um, yeah. So it was cool to talk over things. And then when he would play something that sounds like something, when you learn a lot and you learn about music development and through, through programs or school curriculums, you, you, you kind of understand that style feature when it's happening. And then you just kind of complement it with, by playing the way that those players played and then make right. it your own, of course, just don't, just don't completely steal or, you know, copyright something or plagiarize something. Right. What's like, what's the most difficult or weirdest time signature that you like to experiment with? Uh, <laughs> that's a funny question. I mean, I could tell you this, the most recent one I've been trying to work on, it's, it's always stuff that I'm, I'm listening to in, in uh, music that tends to be more in the far East like an Indian ragas and talas, the meters they use. It's very, it's non-Western. It's a whole other feeling. It's a whole other understanding of the cycle of coming around in a piece or a song to the next cycle and then going over and over again and interpret, playing those rhythms over and over again with a lot of discipline. And the meters tend to be, they're not, definitely not in what we would call 4-4 four, four time. So Frank Zappa applied a lot of that to his music as well brilliantly um and joe's garage has a particular song called keep it greasy that's the one i've been kind of working on because there's a couple in there that you can just play over in the solo sections that are challenging and if you can just keep doing that it's it's um uh, it's kind of almost a trance-like state of mind that you get into so i listen to that and then um you know there's a record that John McLaughlin came out a long time ago 
um, where there's a song called Gift. That song Gift, I think is what it's called. Um, Trilak Gertu is a famous percussionist slash drum set player. He's kind of created this hybrid of, of a setup. And that song, that particular one is, it's, it's very cool to play to. And, and I try to work, play along with that as well. Uh, I've been playing also some Snarky Puppy lately and, and some of the older records they have where they were playing more progressive stuff. And there's some tricky little things that that Spud is doing that I'm trying to, you know, practice with. Right. Yeah. Nice. I, don't know. I mean, it's just listening and practicing. And then even my own band, Kick the Cat, we have certain things that were very odd time meters, you know. It's just how you group it and how you count it and then how you interpret it on your instrument. Like in, if you break it down to twos and threes, like the way Frank was teaching his players, you have to just drill it over and over and over again for hours and hours and hours until you eventually get it naturally. You can't just read it all the time on a chart. Some guys right. can, but most just have to retain it. And Yeah. I've definitely gotten lost in some of those beats that you throw down in, in the improv section. Like, and I, I feel like as a musician, like I, I've played guitar my whole life. I don't know how your bandmate can stay in time when you go so far at a time. It seems anyway, maybe I'm just overthinking the time signature or something, but like, I feel like maybe they get lost sometimes too with the. Well, I do. I definitely do too. We all do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, nobody's always 100% right or wrong, um, but that's the beauty of it. And it's just a matter how you react to it. It's, it can be, intense at times if someone's trying to hold down something they're kind of going for that's more you know uh over the bar line or implied that way if you miss something just ever so slightly it could get off and then you're dealing with a train wreck so then you have to recover from it and get back to something but that's the beauty of the music that we can at least we try to or the spirit that we're trying to uh accomplish here and, and and what we're very grateful for is that the fans will, will accept it and, and like that we go for things they almost yeah. seem to embrace the the human element of it so at least we're we're all right there and at least we're not bad at it i wouldn't say we're not bad <laughs> we're probably you know uh years into this knowing how to play progressive certain elements you know some other bands are way more advanced with it but it's just a matter of how far you want to take it and why i guess yeah context is yeah for sure those risks are kind of what make you guys who you are and that's where those gems kind of come from right yeah i think it, it's just talk we talk about it a little bit and then we just sort of work it out in the moment and then we just try to remember it through listening back the playback was was big you know when we start recording our, our shows and then we would start releasing those recordings before we would listen to it our 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 um our shows after we played, like when we were in a van in the early stages and of my career with them, we would listen over and over again to things and we would pick out moments that we liked and we try to build on that and, and the concepts, you know, everyone's role on that. Right. Um, Listening. So like, I, like I was saying with, and you mentioned like potential train wrecks and stuff. Um, Nicole Thorne was wondering what's one of the most memorable blooper type moments from a show that, you can maybe remember or train wrecks, I guess. <laughs> There's a lot of them. <laughs> uh, throw those in the, in the dumpster and forget about it. Um, no, I don't, I have no shame. I mean, I will say this. Uh, I remember 
I don't know what specific year it was. I'm sure some fan will tell me what it was. Uh, but we played Bonnaroo in the late tent for later shows in that tent, uh, whichever one it was, this or that tent. And um, we were going to start. Um, I can't remember if we were trying to start 40s theme or start one of the other songs. And I kept playing something else while the other guys kept playing 40s. I guess we were trying to start 40s and I was playing something else. Right. Or maybe it was the other way around. And we, <laughs> we stopped and then I tried to count it off again. I did the exact same thing again. And then we stopped again. It was just almost like it was an intended mistake. Like it was almost comical. My, my brain just gets tired sometimes and I'm, you know, bloopers there. Well, like I said, the hardest working man in show business. So <laughs> you're allowed yeah, that, to. That was a term that Jake started and it's, you know, we, it's not necessarily true, but I, I'm grateful that he says it. It's probably because he's saying that I'm trying too hard, <laughs> that, I'm, <laughs> that I've been playing too much. Uh, but I think that in life, you know, you can never give too much of an effort, you know, with what you do. It's just take, it's just part of the pride of it. You know, I don't want to always try to like, be squeaky clean and act like I'm like, you know, you know, playing like I don't give a shit, you know, I play like I really mean it, you know, and that's, I think where that's coming from. Right. It doesn't mean I'm trying to prove something to everybody that, you know, I'm, I am the hardest working guy, you know, it's, that's nice of Jake to say, I think he was the one who started that. Nice. But yeah. I appreciate the fans saying that. Yeah, for sure. Um, Alex Mello was wondering, who do you have the loudest in your monitor? Um, I, I have a general mix that's a general FOH or front of house mix, as they would call it. You could probably ask, you know, our modern engineer about that, but I would say that I have a pretty even keeled, uh, balanced mix. I do tend to hear want soloists up at moments and then, you know, then back in the mix a little bit later manually, but I don't ask for too many monitor moves during the show. Maybe a few, a handful. Sometimes I have nights where, yeah, it's very challenging because from room to room, you got to understand every room sounds different. It's very challenging. And some rooms obviously are really tight and studio treated. Some, night, some places are just it's like you're playing in a barn, you know? So yeah. like you, you just don't know what, you know, when you play after year after year and you get to know these venues, then you start to prepare yourself to know what, you know, what to, to ask for more of. And sometimes Chris will, the front of house guy will, will suggest what you would want to try to do for your playing or what you can listen for better. Like some stages have like subs underneath the stage. So it's too bass heavy. Then you want to back off on that a little bit. Um, but, you know, I just, I definitely want to make sure though, most importantly that I do have Ryan very nice and, clear in my mix yeah. uh, sometimes pedals for all guitars are they have to work on the levels of them sometimes they go up a few dbs and then down to my understanding and right. that has to be worked out um, but yeah it's all good i mean i, I kind of do generally a, a, a balanced front of house mix cool um so you, you mentioned some rooms are different uh sam hudson was wondering what what some of your favorite rooms to play well, I guess if you're saying rooms, technically that doesn't mean Red Rocks because that's an outdoor venue. So that's probably everyone's favorite. Um, yeah, sure. I, I love playing um, the Fox Theater in Oakland. It's a gorgeous theater. It sounds great for how big it is and how, and of course it, it looks amazing. 
Um, fairly new, isn't it? Well, it's it's fairly in terms of the renovations they did, maybe yeah. however many years ago, maybe five, seven years ago, maybe longer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they did an incredible job with that. And then the Beacon Theater is really nice in New York City. Um, I like the pageant, St. Louis. That's a cool room. Um, you know, there's so many. It's hard to say. <laughs> but uh, I think I think it depends on on like how I'm feeling that day too. Sometimes I like to play a small, intimate venue where we'll that we'll play. You know, like the Hive or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Depends, I guess. So you mentioned Red Rocks right off the bat when I mentioned rooms. Is that one of your favorite places in the world to play? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. It's, it's so yeah, much and so hard to deny the the beauty of it and the, the experience. Have you seen a show there? Uh, yeah, I've seen it quite a few in the past when I wasn't playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, this, I couldn't believe how amazing the sound was. Like, and I yeah. knew it was going to be great because the hype was inc- like just everybody talks about it. But every seat in that cave or cavern, I guess you'd call it, is just incredible incredible yeah it is incredible it's just um it's not always just about how it sounds it's about how it feels too and um everyone feeds off of that including obviously the fans and the people in the in the audience like and they're always rip roaring out there in colorado there's just some kind of in the water out there everyone's (laughs) on like a whole other level of just excitement it's really cool yeah, Tara Gracer, you probably know her. She does a lot yeah. of the photography for you guys. She's a, she's a great friend. She was wondering, when are you moving to Denver? <laughs> That's a very nice invite. I appreciate that. I love <laughs> Denver. It's beautiful. It's it's changed so many in, in just so many ways since we first started. We used to play there. Um, I don't think I'll probably be moving anytime soon. Uh, I do like being close to the Midwest, close to to my family uh, that are still in Illinois and. Um, I definitely want to have easier access to touring around the city, around the country and have a hub to, and Nashville seems to be more like middle America where I want to be. But yeah, I appreciate that invite. Denver's gorgeous. <laughs> I, I mean, I wanted to stay in California, um, you know, but, but I just felt like, you know, there were personal reasons and also like just traveling in its own was, it was very difficult to get back and forth out West. Denver's yeah, a little sure. easier uh, than than L.A., that's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just think that uh, Nashville here has something that, that has to offer to, to offer to me, you know, both musically and, and just personally. Yeah. So in Denver, like, with the higher altitude and stuff, a lot of athletes notice that they're short of breath when they're doing things. Do you guys notice that when you play yes. in Denver? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah? Yeah, even well, not in Denver, but Red Rocks for sure. Uh, I I still feel that a little bit. Um, Aspen for sure. Aspen is one that's. Uh, I definitely need to use an oxygen uh, machine at some point. Yeah. Um, you know, to just kind of reset. There, yeah. Yeah, Tara was also wondering, what's your favorite Halloween mashup costume that you've ever done? <laughs> that's a good question. Um. So many good ones. Uh, the Incredible Hulk Hogan was pretty outrageous. <laughs> Although my Hulk Hogan mustache kept falling off, that was funny. 
was awesome. Weird Al Pacino was pretty good. Um, Larry David Letterman. I'm trying to remember all the ones I did. Uh, oh, I think the most outrageous was probably Pamela Anderson Cooper. <laughs> that was awesome. Do you remember where that Halloween show was when you were Pamela Anderson Cooper? I think I was in St. Louis. Yeah. Had- One of yeah. the favorite rooms. Nice. <laughs> yeah, um, I had I had to choose I remember in order to get in order to get the big boobs, I had to I originally had balloons in there and then it looked perfect, but then I when I'd play I was afraid I'd pop one. So I had to put in like stuff some socks or something and I <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh David Ronald was saying over the years, Bayless has indicated that you love or hate to play certain songs. So let's set the record straight. Fave um original to play and fave cover or mashup. Favorite ones? Yeah. Favorite cover? I, I mean, it's changed over the years. But I think most of the time in my career, I've always felt Plunger had all of the elements that is Unfreeze um, McGee when I joined. Whether or not it's the best song, I don't care. It's just what I thought was one of my favorites because of the, all the elements. Yeah. Um, so I'd probably pick that one. Uh, favorite mashup? Uh, well, that's a tough one, but um, I, I, you know, I have to think about that one. Uh, I think the uh, let's see. I don't know, actually. I like all of them in different ways. Um, favorite cover? Probably, oh, that's a tough one. I don't even, I can't even answer these questions. Uh, we played so many covers over the years. Um, yeah, I, I can't I like, answer that one either. I, have to think I like about when you get to sing. Like 46 and 2 is great drum beat and a great cover, plus you're singing. Like, mm-hmm. I think that really showcases how just incredible of a musician that you are when you can keep those time signatures as well as sing at the same time thank you i appreciate that it's it's at least going forward is all we can hope for i mean it's really (laughs) tough to sing like maynard and in any setting and and then play danny's parts um it's it's challenging um i don't i don't really nail it per se but i do my i do a good job at it i don't do a great job but I do a good job. And uh, of course, you know, there's always going to be some critical people, but that's, that's life, you know, Um, it's hard to get your voice to be totally tuned in more than, you know, like, and and from show to show, I have a lot of respect for vocalists more than ever now, because now trying to do it and you realize you have to do warm ups, you have to build your voice and you're you're like a muscle and be, be gentle on it at times when you you don't need to talk or, or whatever. It's, it's important. Um, because, you know, you can only hope to try to do a, just a, a pretty seamless, you know, uh, effort to it, uh, you know, performance of it. And uh, I still don't have it 100%, but I'm, I'm still going to keep trying. <laughs> right. Do you like... Uh, as far as covers, you- though, I'm afraid I don't know at the moment what my favorite cover would be at this time. Because we're learning new ones, and the old ones are, I'm not thinking right now. Um, right. Life During Exodus has probably been my favorite uh, mashup to play, 
but the Frankie Zombie one is also fun. I enjoy the fun part of it, the party aspect. Right. Uh, I wish I can do the one with I Can't Feel My Face and, um, and the Michael Jackson, but it's, again, playing and singing like that is very difficult. And you don't want to do it, you want to do it justice if you do it. <laughs> so For sure, yeah. Hopefully we'll practice it more and more and then we'll do it again, but we'll see. Yeah, my, I would say my favorite is National Loser Anthem. I saw you guys debut that in Boston for that Halloween show and that. Oh, cool. We had probably 10 people there in our group and it just blew everyone's mind when like, I knew you guys played national anthem. And then, so that started the song and we're like, oh, nice Radiohead cover. We're all pretty pumped. And then Beck came in with Loser and things just started like folding together. And it was just such a mind blowing experience to see how perfectly those songs fit together. Yeah, that's kind of the whole point of it is to show yeah. and demonstrate how funny pop music or stuff that's in the pop realm, can, how similar the songs really are in structure. You can almost yeah. literally just mix and match a lot of them if they're in the same key or at least a similar riff or, or tempo. There's a lot of just, I wouldn't say plagiarism or ripping off, but it, over the years in rock and roll, it, that is that doesn't go unnoticed. <laughs> no, for sure, right? Yeah. Um, do you enjoy when you get a chance to come out from behind the kit and like just just focus on the vocals like like a, like a Rage Against the Machine cover? Yeah. Honestly, I, I get excited at first, but then I realize after I do it, I'm like, I can't be doing this shit. I have no business doing this because it's really difficult to try to be a front man. I, I can't get myself comfortable enough. To, I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I'll do it. But I don't feel comfortable. I'm usually more naturally comfortable behind something, behind the drum set while I'm singing, instead of being up front, like thinking about everything else in my, you know, my body from head to toe, what I'm doing, how I'm moving, and not look like some kind of, you know, Momo up there. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking on, and out loud here. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the Rage one, I might, I might have to put that one to rest. I can't sing like Zach DeLaRocca. No one can. He, he was incredible. He is incredible. I mean, sure. I don't think he, I think he's underrated as a rapper. He's actually legit good, like better than most professional legendary rappers. He's, he's got this energy and, and, and high level pitch to his sound. And it's so intense, like public enemy intense, but, but yet he's like, he's just throwing it down at you, you know, from song to song and it's incredible. And I can't even get through the second verse. So yeah. <laughs> No, I'm I really bummed that about this, by the way. I was going to try to see Rage on tour this year and really bummed Thanks. about what's going on. I got tickets for uh, the Quebec City show, and that's a little later in the summer, so there's still a chance, maybe, but probably not, right? I don't know. I mean, it's <sighs> like I said, it's tough to say, bro. It's like uh, I wish I could share information that I, I don't think we even know ourselves yet. So <laughs> I know. All right, let's, uh, let's do some rapid fire on these questions so we can try to get through them a little quicker. Yeah. Uh, Steven Riley wants to know what kind of drumsticks do you prefer? He, we know like you got a signature, uh, the Vic Firths, I think, but is that what you always use no matter what? I do now. Uh, for Humphreys, it's 55A's wood tip, uh, Vic Firths, 55A. Just a little bit more weight to it than a 5A and just a little bit wider. Just, just a little bit. Um, a 5A is kind of um, just not quite delivering, you know, the execution yeah. I need. But I like using 5As, though, if I could, especially for other 
projects with the 55 is what I've pretty much conformed to. 55 right. uh, Colleen, Colleen Brennan and Brett Flynn wanted to kind of know who your favorite drummer drummers are or like maybe top three, if you can think of it might maybe influential drummers too for you. Um, well, I have to say the one uh, like without a doubt is, is Vinny Caliuta. Most drummers will definitely understand why he's everything he touches turns to gold uh, in terms of session work and what he's, what recordings he's been on and the influence my generation has been from him. Um, right. Uh, then there's also um, so many different players for different reasons. I mean, Stuart Copeland was probably the most important drummer to me growing up because the police was a band that was contagious to me, even when I was like a toddler, when I was three years old, hearing that music around my house, just records being played, you know, and his sound seemed to, you know, naturally come to me more and John Bonham. Um, but I mean, in terms of other, like studio musicians. I mean, there's Jeff Porcaro, there's uh, Steve Gadd. I'd say Steve Gadd, Jeff, and uh, Steve Gadd, Vinny, and probably Stuart Copeland are probably my top three, if I would say right now. That'll probably change in five minutes, but yeah. <laughs> nice. Stephen Clark wants to know, how many arms do you really have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, two at the moment. Uh, when I play, I transform into a octopus, and I have eight arms. Absolutely. <laughs> that question kind of reminded me of like the four stick approach you use for a similar skin. Where does like does that have a name that that technique, or is that something you kind of came up with? Uh, no, there is no name. I should create a name for it. No, it's a it's not original idea. It's it's actually deriving from what the riff reminded me of, which the song to me. It's different, it's original, but it's, it, it, it derives from the, the sound and the vibe of Four Sticks, the song from Led Zeppelin. It's not probably what, you know, <laughs> Brennan was thinking, but that's what I hear, heard when I, right. when I heard it. You know, Four Sticks is on, the, I believe, the Led Zeppelin 4 album. And yep. uh, what it means is Bonham was playing, John was playing with Four Sticks, two in each hand. To get that sound, you can kind of get like a bundle of sticks sound. It's just a little bit more of a brush fire of sound that you're hearing more tribal in some ways. Um, right. And then Steve Gadd did that with uh, Paul Simon. Um, uh, Late in the Evening, I think is the one he played with, with Four Sticks as well. So it's, it's been done. Yep. I just did that. Just cool. to, you know, do my version of it. <laughs> um, are there any future prospects for like Omfrey? You know, it's a great question, and I, I really feel like that band could have been a lot more, you know, busy, and I wish we did more. I really love those guys. Uh, mm. Chris Pollan and, and Rob Pagliari are, are just fantastic people as well as players, and they're just really cool uh, to, to hang out with, and, and of course, they're incredible to play with, and Joel and Jake and I collaborated with them, and their band was called OHM, O-H-M, in the L.A. area, um, and surrounding areas um was where they're based out of and we used to yeah do we did two recordings you know and a few tours and we just kind of stopped at some point it was just difficult to do time wise right. uh for everybody so i don't foresee it happening again but you can never say never i mean who knows it depends on 
you know, where they're at and where we're at in our lives, you know. Uh, so no plans as of yet, but we'll see. That's unfortunate. No, I love both of those albums, but that was a cool super group per se. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Dennis McBride asked if you would do an impression of the Godfather for us. I can't do the Godfather. <laughs> That's not my expertise. <laughs> I won't even try. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I could definitely do like, you know, Michael McDonald you know, and, and Robert De Niro and, and Christopher Walken, but um, give us your best. I just have to, I just have to think about it for a moment, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to do it. I'm on the spot. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I like to be a, a method actor. Right. Um, it, it's going to be in the heat of the moment, right? Yes. <laughs> I've seen you do Michael McDonald live. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I mean, what guy does not want to do Michael McDonald? That's all of I got. Of course. <laughs> Ryan Mahar or Mayor wants to know who's the second best drummer in Nashville. Second best drummer in Nashville? <laughs> That's a yeah. funny question. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't go ahead and say Chris Myers. Uh, no way. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of fantastic studio drummers here. Um, I'm still getting to know the scene here, actually. I, I'm, I had to literally get a list of Nashville drummers. In fact, I might have it here on my phone. I, I'm honestly new to the scene, even after three years being here. Um, but a lot of the players here are more studio-based players and players that travel on tour um, and play big pop acts and stuff. Um, this is more of an industry town, you know, uh, like a songwriting. And when they say it's Music City, it's really more not Music City, but more industry city. Right. Uh, that's my, just my opinion. Um, but a lot of people who are tourists go to the touristy part of the music town, which is Broadway, where all, there's a lot of honky-tonks and people playing just around the clock. It's pretty amazing that that happens, but um, I think that Music City is not necessarily, I think it would call it more like, you know, Industry City, because it's, it's an incredible yeah. hub for songwriters. And it's great. I go to songwriting showcases once in a while, or did used to, and it, it's it, everyone here is, writes great music. They write for for big pop artists, drummers. Um, I'm still looking for the list. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. You can go to the next question. Cool. Um, Chris Hogan was from Seattle. He says he has a collection of your drumsticks, and was wondering if there's any way for him to get a set authenticated for him to gift to a fan. Yeah, sure. Um, he can he can DM me on uh, any of the socials from Instagram to uh, Facebook. I'll remember and then be sure to respond. I mean, just have him direct message me. Don't don't re respond to a post that I I put out and that's and that's not in context with what that is about. Just and you know, uh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say we can finish up here if you want. I was gonna ask you if there's any way we can get a quick little demonstration on the kit behind you dude i'd love that and you know what i i just downloaded the zoom and i was planning to do that unfortunately when i play it just mutes oh, i have really? to work on the settings for the microphones i'm i'm a little behind i apologize i'll probably oh, i could do this next week again if you want and we could try this again 
and I'll probably have the microphone situation figured out by then. I might yeah, even use sure. this guy right here. I'm not using it now because I don't. I didn't have time to hook it up. So yeah, uh, if I get my mic settings next week, can we maybe try then? Absolutely, that'd be awesome. If you don't mind, I mean, it's not like we're all going anywhere. So I, yeah, I don't exactly. mind. Um, and I, I still can't find the list of drummers, but I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not a little as prepared with these questions. These, these fans, they think of very, very clever questions and I don't know what to say. A lot of diehard Umphreys fans. Yeah. Um, uh, lastly, I think the last thing that I'll, I'll ask you right now is, um, when you're on tour traveling, like if you get a say three night run somewhere, do you guys like to see the cities and do it like touristy? sightseeing stuff like that yes um not always but when we have days off yeah some people will do that um i try to do that but it, it's it's honestly a lot of the guys just go straight home when they can to their families because they have you know they have parental duties yeah yeah um, and also everyone just likes to keep it you know keep it brief on on the traveling after all these years, when you travel as much as we have, you just want to get home any minute, of, every minute of the day, whenever you can get it. Um, obviously, right now we're getting that quite a bit, you know. And it's it's a little strange though when you're mandated to stay at your house. But uh, but yeah, we like being at home. So uh, I'd say as far as getting out to see things, it's few. It's we try to, but it's it's few and far between. Yeah. With Iceland, like, did you have any plans? Like, have you been to Iceland? Or, no. Like, and of course, we're, yeah, of course we were going to go out and explore, you know. I think there was like a hiker, a, a glacier hike excursion, you know, hike a glacier. And then we were going to go see uh, a bunch of like beautiful landscapes, you know, waterfalls and stuff. I mean, Iceland is a, it's a beautiful and magical looking place. It looks incredibly beautiful. Um, and it's part of my Scandinavian heritage, so I enjoy that very much. Yeah. yeah that was kind of what I was alluding to at the start of this with the Chris with a K. My girlfriend is Norwegian. So, like, her cousin is also a Chris with a K, and she's a Veronica yeah. with a K. So, it'll be me yeah. as well. My dad's yeah. from Norway. He actually he lived in southern Norway, uh, the southern tip um, called Mandau. It's like a mountain town that's very unknown. But it was like one of the southernmost points of Norway, and, and and he moved to Brooklyn when he was like, fifteen or fourteen, and um, and then he eventually got in the navy, and then after after the navy, he you know eventually ended up in Illinois, uh, in the suburbs of Chicago, met my mom, and then the rest is history. So, um, yeah, I have, I am a yes, a, uh, I have Norwegian blood in me. Nice. Yeah. Do you have any plans for anything like Bayless has been doing with the wine not setting setups and stuff like that? Like, are you going to do some late night shows for us? I'm going to eventually get uh, myself together here for next week. I'm going to admit that um, I was going through a kind of a, a period of dragging myself. I was just kind of depressed and, and kind of in a strange place, uh, trying to get my, my spirit up more upbeat during this time, the last couple of weeks. And, um, uh, I think that now I'm enjoying doing more activity. I'm playing again on the drums. I went out for hikes and I'm going to start doing some, some streams. And, and I guess 
I'll probably be doing some lessons next week in the next couple of weeks as well, uh, because nice. there's been a lot of outpouring um, uh, feedback for me to do lessons, which I'm very grateful of, and I'm happy to share whatever it is I can, I can do. So I, I guess stay tuned for that. I'm going to be working on that and getting myself together with, with that. And then as far as performances, I might just more or less film. I might be doing just more filming of me playing stuff and posting it. I'm not sure if I'll do anything live yet, any kind of stream, but it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all kind of went through the, the initial depression and just kind of, of course uncer uncertainty that's gone along with all this. Is there something specific that you found helped you kind of get through that? Um, I have, like I said, I just had to just get moving, get myself moving, do things, clean, organize around the house. Um, get on your feet, get going, like go, if you can find a place to walk or hike and get out of your house for a little bit away from, you know, people, of course, right. wearing a mask. Uh, luckily where I live, uh, I'm pretty spread out in my neighborhood. So I'm able to, I go to a hiking trail though, and it's, it's beautiful. And um, it's just me and nature. And uh, I like that helped me. That was a game changer last week to do that. So I recommend that. Um, maybe start writing things down, uh, read some bo read books and try to get away from a screen. I'm, that's my next goal is to get away from the screens a little bit. Um, of course, video streams, you know, considered. With that, I'll, I'll do that and uh, video <laughs> footage. But I'm hoping to kind of get my head out of the phone a little bit next, next week um, and read a book. Um, things that I normally wouldn't do as much, I think you take it for granted. So. I also have a list of drummers, by the way. Um, these are just people I've been recommended over the years, and I, I'm still getting to know them. But I know this one guy, Jordan Pearlson, who's fantastic. He's a progressive drummer, but he's he's like a studio guy. He plays he played with Jeff Kaufman, and he plays an Adrian Blues trio right now, or it's actually a quartet now. Um, Marcus Finney, who's a friend, I think he's really talented. I like him a lot. Um, he's an all-around great drummer for jazz and. You know, he could do a lot of other things too, rock and, and R&B and um, Ash Sohn, Ash and then S-O-A-N, Sohn, uh, J.D. Beck, Ian Fitchuk, Fitchuk, uh, Evan Hutchings, Duffy Jackson, Nick Buddha, Jerry Rowe is a very famous old Nashville player, Hubert Payne, Richie Martinez. Richie Martinez is incredible. Uh, he's a friend of mine who's like, plays kind of like more of that Animals as Leaders kind of style of playing. Right. Uh, is that Matt Garska? Is that his name? And um, yeah. Intense math rock progressive. And it's, yeah, and, and Richie actually is very versatile, but he, he is someone to check out on the Instagram. He's pretty incredible. He orchestrate. he like literally composes his own patterns and, and he just rips, man. <laughs> he's great. And he's a ball of energy. He actually does martial arts, I think, on the side, which is actually smart for a drummer. You should do something like that to help keep your body in, 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 uh, the, with the quickness and, and your, you know, your core is more in shape and things. All things that I need to do. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so lastly, All right. <laughs> book recommendation to end on. You said you're going to do some reading. You got a book lined up? Yeah, I was thinking of rereading some some old books. Um, 
I think the art of motorcycle maintenance, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance is a classic and, and it, it might be the right frame of mind for me to get in right now. Um, I'm also trying to remember the alchemists is something that I like to read right now spiritually to get my mind right. I think those two we'll start with. And then uh, I love autobiographies of musicians and I'm trying, or biographies, either or. And I'm trying to get into a couple um, uh, at the time right now. Um, I'm, I mean, Frank Zappa's, any of his biographies are great. The real Frank Zappa is a very good one. Uh, the old Miles Davis classic uh, autobiography is great. Um, I would say the Jocko one is, is probably my favorite, but but it's actually the the most, I think it's the saddest because Jocko yeah. was incredible and the way that he went was really, it really hits you hard. And, and, and the the biography really explains it in detail and like the, the progression that this this poor man went through who was one of the most brilliant musicians of all time. So, and people, you know, let alone, and he was just, yeah. you know, anyway. But yeah, I'll probably yeah. that's a start right there. <laughs> that's perfect. All right, man. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'll be in touch next week and hopefully we can get something set up for a little demonstration. That sounds great. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to do it. I'm 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 gonna be back, I'm gonna be more prepared next week. So perfect. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a lot. You got it. Take care. You too. All right, man. <laughs>